0: I looked back through history, and there really isn't an analogy to the amount of money that the American laws that Congress passed last year and uh, President Biden signed into law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, and the loans program. There isn't a precedent for the United States doing that, unless you're talking about war.
1: Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, Steve Levine joins my colleague, Jane Nakano, to discuss recent developments in the U.S. electric vehicle market and the battery supply chain. Steve is the editor of The Electric, a new publication looking at batteries, electric vehicles, and their impact on society, cities, and geopolitics. Together, they look at the policy, legislative, and geopolitical issues shaping the pace and scope of the U.S. EV battery market and supply chains. And they also look at how competition from Chinese manufacturers is impacting developments in the United States and in the EU. I'll turn it over to Jane now for this timely discussion.
2: So, Steve, it looks like there's never a day that you read about something to do with EVs, whether it's, you know, EV markets growing around the world or EV battery manufacturing investments. You know, I'd love to get your thought on like all these, you know, what is happening in this space? Like, you know, what are you know some of the key developments that you think are really noteworthy?
0: Yeah, thanks, Jane, for that. So, batteries are batteries and EVs are the fashionable thing, right? It's the the uh, maybe it's the the new kid at school or something. I, I'm I'm not sure what it is, but it it really has caught the imagination from the Reddit crowd all the way through to you know the highest sectors of the policy making community everywhere around the world, and it's it's been discussed. You know. In the EU and Davos, every newspaper on the front page, I get Nikkei, right? The, the Japanese, it's on the front page of The Economist last week or so. Anyway, one thing about it, I think, that, um, that gives it stickiness is that it hits on so many parts of, you know, very important aspects of, uh, of our lives, of business, economy, policy democracy making, big geopolitics, big power, all of these, it's not just, it's not a notional thing. It's a very real, concrete thing. It does have enormous ramifications, and, and it, depending on how it's execute, how uh, things go over the next few years, it can have enormous impact.
2: Yeah, I fully agree. So, you know, within the United States, it's been exciting to see, um, strong government support, uh, looking at the EV supply chains. You know, it's the, the upstream mining, the greater awareness that the energy transition won't, won't happen without more minerals. But then looking at the midstream, you know, EV battery supply, uh, or manufacturing capacity is very much encouraged under, you know, Inflation Reductions Act. And also even, you know, the material science, R&D and recycle, you know, DOE is getting a lot of money as well. But, you know, what are sort of the net impact on U.S. ability to have um, supply chain that is more resilient to supply disruption, whether it's, you know, from geopolitical tension or whether it's just some sort of a natural disaster?
0: Yeah. So we're starting from zero. It's it's pretty incredible. I wouldn't say it's widely known, but Americans inv- invented all these chemistries that are being used, all these batteries that are going into these EVs were invented in the United States over the last three decades. The, uh, the Nobel Prize for chemistry for the batteries, it was three people, and one was born in Germany, one was born in Britain, they're both Americans. So we are starting at zero, even though the battery, the lithium ion battery was invented using uh, technology that was invented in the United States. And the most popular by far uh, car maker, EV car maker is American, the Tesla. We are incredibly starting from scratch in in terms of, of making an industry, but we can do that. I looked back through history And there really isn't an analogy to the amount of money that the American laws that Congress passed last year and uh, President Biden uh, signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Bill, and the the Loans Program. There isn't a precedent for the United States doing that unless you're talking about war, World War II. Well, we did that in World War II. That was war. Right? When is, it, when is there a peacetime deployment of, uh, of these kinds of resources to get behind, uh, you know, decide this is a strategic industry, we're going to get behind it, we're going to create it, and, and it's going to hit all of the points that we need. We're going to re- relearn how to manufacture, we're going to rebuild cities and towns that were lost, we're going to fund, uh, you know, you have an old plant that hasn't produced Anything for three decades, we're, you know we're going to rebuild something in that in that plant. There's the money for that and and so to the degree that we stick with it, right, through presidential administrations, this will straddle at least three eight-year terms, right? So the money has to stay there. We can't have from one party taking over to the other. We're going to repeal these bills. no. The, the, the money and it should be it should be renewed when it does expire when this money does expire in 2032 i know i i probably sound like i'm bubbling over but if you're a you know a history buff there isn't something like this you know if you've spent years where things didn't work where things weren't done the right thing was not passed or it was a half measure this isn't it's not a half measure it's done
2: right in many ways, I think there is a um, good degree of bipartisan support for the need for minerals and I think there's greater recognition that the modern economy requires these you know critical minerals and I think when it comes to something like you know then you know how to address environmental, you know, regulations, the pace and scope of potential reform. I think that's where we might see a bit of a, you know, difference, but I'm, I'm really, you know, I definitely notice how, you know, that's very much something that, you know, is better appreciated today, but Speaking of the sort of onshoring theme, you know, some of these provisions from the Inflation Reductions Act, um, especially the EV, you know, battery manufacturing or assembly, as well as mineral content requirements, have sort of given um, headache or heartburn to some of our, you know, friends and allies, if you will. How do we balance, better balance the, you know, the supply chain resiliency and friendshoring? While being attentive to the industrial competitiveness concerns, you know whether it's in Europe or, or Northeast Asia, how you know should it shape up?
0: Yeah, maybe you know this is it's, it's a good question, and you don't want to poke your finger into your friend's eye, and you you have to be diplomatic. Like for example, Korea, it's a non-Chinese maker of a, a lot of the components that go into. The battery you know you do want you want korea on 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 side so you can think of a way to transition right for the next few years that that kind of you know say okay you know we'll do this for you right but in the end it's it's one of those things like you know when you know when the constitution was written you know a bunch of countries copied it or you know or or they adapted it to their local it's kind of like that you know The US should say, well, we'll help you to write your own Inflation Reduction Act. But in the end, what's going to happen is that the pie is very large. There's enough to go around. The economics of batteries require localization of the supply chain. It's not chips. Chips weigh nothing, right? So you can make them and ship them wherever. Batteries weigh a ton, right? And so they really do, the processes do have to be localized. Europe, has to like get over its shock, and you know make its batteries at, at home like it should have done anyway. You know we can say that nicely. You know the U.S. can as much as possible. We should friend shore, but as much as possible onshore. And, and this has a moral component. We we should not be exporting our pollution. And so the U.S. should have principles, environmental principles that are observed in processing lithium, nickel, and cobalt, and graphite into the final form that go into the batteries, you know, do it as clean as possible. But, you know, basically everyone, the US Americans need to accept, need to embrace, right? We're making this, uh, the industry is making this transition. We're going to build the capacity for this. There's so many reasons, including Democracy building at home. That there should be needs to be a mindset change to embrace these industries.
2: So would you say that a French shoring and to some extent nearshoring, maybe in you know some of the Latin American countries that have uh, mineral wealth, would be part of sort of U.S. strategy and U.S. vision um, because perhaps the demand for these you know clean energy minerals will be you know increasing so much. So the onshoring, would you say, is probably not 100% onshoring. It's probably not a viable goal.
0: Yeah, maybe not even half. Now, I, I don't know what the percentage is. But um, it's not 100%. It's probably not 75%. And again, maybe not ha- half. The rest are in countries. The way the law is written is um, countries with which the U.S. has a free trade agreement. Uh, the U.S. does not have a free trade agreement with Europe. So that you know that has to be... Result. By the way, the, the law was written to provide wiggle room for exactly the, the situations, right? So when Manchin, Senator Manchin's staff, wrote the bill, it understood that it couldn't be hermetically sealed, right? That you were going to lose people by insisting, you know, on 100% compliance, you know, no sex or smoking until you're 21. Well, not everyone is going to follow that, you know, probably very few people, right? Like that's the equivalent here. So there are parts of the law that are no Chinese content, but there are other parts that are very generous that have no content requirement. And so stop complaining.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think the, you know, idea is to really, you know, have this, you know, minerals and EV battery supply chain as an area for the race to the top, you know, like, you know, we can each, you know, invest more and then have much more, you know, thoughtful approach, you know, and building the supply chains. Now, China, you know, China comes into the conversation. So, you know, there's this, you know, the tension has been growing between Washington and Beijing. And, you know, some people, you know, say that, uh, you know, we are already entering this decoupling mode. You know, I don't know if it's decoupling or uncoupling, but, you know, in many ways, you know, U.S. companies have fairly, you know, healthy degree of interdependence with Chinese EV companies or battery manufacturers. Also, China is the, by far the largest EV market. So, you know, how do you see the, you know, the, this geopolitics or U.S.-China bilateral Peace interacting with the, the EV ba- battery supply chain uh, efforts in, you know, the OECD, the Western democracies.
0: China is going to, at the, at the other end of this, whether it's, uh, whenever that is, if we're talking about the late 2030s or in the 2040s, the other side of, of the, the dynamic we're talking about, China is still going to control much of the battery supply chain because it's you know, we're we're going 90 miles an hour, and China is going 120 miles an hour. And and when I say that, I mean, you can look at the rate of construction, planned construction of new processing plants by the big battery companies, and they're enormous, and many of them. Where whereas you know we're just getting, getting started. So China is still it's still going to be part part of things, but the U.S. and Europe needs to be much smarter. About what our companies agree to do when we go to China, and what we, and what we agree that Chinese companies can do when they come to the United States. For example, Ford, uh, as as a bunch of your listeners will will be fu- fully aware of, just signed an agreement with CATL, the the Chinese battery company. It's the largest EV battery company in the in the world. They sell more than one third of all EV batteries. Ford is licensing its technology and it's building uh, a battery gigafactory in Michigan using this technology. And it it kind of has to, right? Because it's technology, it's only available in China. But there's no part of the agreement that involves sharing of know-how. Ford is going to walk away from this agreement having gained nothing or oh, I should say, virtually nothing in terms of raising its its own game, its independent game. That's a flaw. So you you can't have a deal like that. Again, there has to be some form of training, know-how. They're not going to open up the chemistry and sh- and share that. But there are all kinds of things short of that that involve the U.S. ending up with a skilled workforce.
2: So the the idea right for you know Ford and C.A.T.L. is that CATL will be producing, but again, it's, so it's more like a black box, you know, so they're, you know, letting, so they won't be sharing any of the technology, any of the sort of crown jewel, if you will. But I guess in return, um, Ford will have access to the batteries that could be in Ford vehicles and also the, the, you know, host com- community will get more jobs,
0: right? Yes. So so it's even not that many. It's 2,500 jobs in the beginning. And by the way, the state of Michigan provided a billion dollars to Ford to build this plant. And so there could be more offered. But yes, so Ford is licensing CATL's technology. It was not explained how, what the mechanism is. Is CATL shipping over finished batteries, finished cells? Is it sending over just the The finished chemistry, whatever it is, whatever that is, it is, it will be hermetically sealed. It will be shared and shown with no one. They're not teaching Ford how to replace sometime CATL, which incidentally, those are the Chinese deals, right? When you go to to, to China or historically, when you go to, to China, you end up doing exactly that, handing over the crown jewels
2: to the Chinese Many companies, many automakers right. uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, you know, seem quite interested in you know getting into the upper end of the the, the auto value chains or EV value chains. Is this a trend that you expect to see uh, accelerating or decelerating? Or
0: uh, first, it's a a dynamic that's only beginning. So you you had GM took an equity stake, six hundred and fifty million-dollar equity stake, it'll end up owning uh, 29% of lithium Americas, buying basically a third of this mining company. But it's been clear for some time that the auto companies and the EV companies, the the pure plays, that they needed to vertically integrate. They're only now doing it. Okay, so sympathizing with them, they have so many things to focus on, right, producing EVs, you know, producing batteries, uh, you know, designing all of these things and paying for all, all of it, you know, and this is just another thing that they, that they have to, um, you know, really focus on as a priority, which is the supply, gaining the supply. And they haven't won, right? They, they spent decades trying to shed companies that are not core and just be the assemblers of the vehicles. But they can't be anymore. They've got to be vertically integrated. The companies in China, you know, specifically the leading companies BYD and CATL are both vertically integrated. The reason they are successful is they uh, they have bought from you know the mine all the way to the end product. Both of them have, and they continue to do that and to build up their muscle. And we we've got Tesla doing that. And GM is probably, apart from Tesla, you know, the, the most newly aggressive in this. But, but I would say, stop being a nice guy and putting on my mean guy hat. They're so slow. The auto companies, the battery companies, and I mean, not only Americans, but I mean, we're relying on the South Koreans. The South Koreans are super slow at competing with the Chinese. The Chinese and Tesla got in front, determined strategically this is going to happen by this I mean the EV shift to EVs and we're going to own that and how are we going to own it what's that going to look like and and then carrying out that that strategy and it's like GM and Ford and Stellantis and the, and also you know the Europeans Volkswagen BMW all of them like they want you know a full order book okay then we'll build then we'll buy then we'll order and that's the old world that's we're in 2023 that world doesn't exist anymore, and, and you better get your act together, because some of you are going to go out of business. Some of you are not going to survive.
2: In order for these Western automakers to survive and, and really you know, stay around till 2030s and then be very competitive, you know, I, I think the question of China – is a really key one, uh, it seems to me. You know, while in the United States, there's this whole you know, the geopolitical backdrop that, that makes conversation rather sensitive. In the meantime, in Europe, you know, the, the tone seems pretty different. And, and in fact, a lot of European companies, uh, including German automakers, seem to you know, have more sort of a business as usual, perhaps you know, uh, type of engagement with Chinese battery makers. What would that mean to the U.S., though? Because, you know, earlier we chatted about uh, the notion of French shoring. So, you know, we want to be working with Europe, but we also need to be, you know, we're starting to see how we can become less dependent on single geographical concentration by China, which is sort of a geopolitical rival now and probably, you know, for the near future. So how do we balance that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is another example of this same sort of dynamic uh recurring where the US, you know, takes the the bull by the horns in 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 geopolitical situations and and Europe, you know, probably because of sensibility but also because of geographical place, you know, geographical reality, historical differences one thing that always in informs me you know one of the places that that I lived as a, a foreign correspondent was the former Soviet Union and the closest analogy to what we're watching now happened in the former Soviet Union and that was when the United States put the full force of the US government from the White House all the way through all of the agencies including the intelligence agencies behind breaking Russia's chokehold on the oil flow out of the Caspian Sea out of the so-called stands and building an alternative oil set of oil and natural gas pipelines not touching Russian Russian soil well the Europeans fought this absolutely bitterly BP threatened to sue the Americans for pushing this policy what well, you know the the US stuck with it and built the pipeline and bp by then B, bp got on board and bp led when the pipeline was actually built led it and attempted to rewrite history today they claim they built the pipeline so you know that's how how history could change and i think this is like that so you know the europeans are making a mistake by getting into bed so fully with the chinese to build up their battery supply chain we will have some. We already do, right? The Ford and the CATL deal, and we, and we'll have to continue doing that through the 2020s because reality is reality, right? We want, we do have EVs coming up. They will be made in great numbers during this decade. Where the battery is going to come from, right? So a lot of them have to come from China. But but that's how you thread the needle. You know, I think it's right that the U.S. is taking a principled stance on this. I think Europe is behaving like Europeans do. Uh, you know will become will get somewhere in the in the middle of, and, I, and I won't be surprised if at the end of the decades that Europeans claim authorship of of, of something like the inflation reduction act.
2: So the you know the inflation reduction act you know as you know we've been chatting about you know has committed you know, a lot of funding, and of course, it has really strong political support from, you know, from the administration. But of course, implementation matters. So, you know, what are some of the signposts that we all should pay attention to as we try to understand how the, you know, the United States can execute you know all the promises and and sort of uh, visions and plans to strengthen uh make our you know EV battery supply chains more resilient you know give them this you know huge amount of money
0: yeah so there there are a few one of them is that battery gigafactories the 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 places where batteries are assembled at large scale are the flavor of the month like this is this is the thing this is the iPhone every Uh, Auto company and battery company wants to build one and they think that gives them street cred They all want to be the cool guy on the block, but they aren't cool Battery gigafactories are not they're fake. They're like when you when you went to Thailand and and you bought the fake Rolex watch and and so the 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 real the real uh, authentic cred is processing Right, so, is, is the U.S. building like one signpost that, that the U.S. is on its way is that cathode, nickel, lithium, graphite, plants that process these minerals and metals into final product and make final product, that they're bubbling up. They're, they're, we're making our own cathodes. We're making our own anodes. And the stuff that goes into the cathodes and anodes, we're processing that stuff so that the chemicals are done here. so those are our signposts. Did we get mining reform law? Is is there a smooth process of attending to local concerns, but still, you know, doing a fair adjudication? And at the end, if you pass through everything, you get to build your plant, you don't have to wait 20 years, you know, and so that would, that would be a signpost. And uh, one other that, uh, that I think it's a social thing, but Not just Americans, Europeans are against mining, against mining, against process, against industrial processes. We don't think that that these industries should be built, well, certainly near our homes, or anywhere else on our continent. This is hypocritical. This is, I think, an immoral stance because what you're doing is you're going to buy an EV and you're okay with it. With that EV and you're you know you're going around showing off you know your green credentials to all your friends, but the stuff that went into that EV was all mined in some other country that you think it's okay that they're dirty, but you won't get your own fingernails dirty at home. So I think that uh, if we see a mindset change in, w- in which Americans become willing uh, and, and embrace industrial reindustrialization, uh, those processes, it's very important. It's important, not just for moral reasons, there's economic reasons, you know, batteries are not chips, right? Uh, you know, they, they do have to be, you know, you you do want short supply chains, but it's also jobs. It's a democracy building process. You You are creating jobs that earn true middle-class wages. I did a, one of the things I did, so I grew up in a uh, smallish town out in California in Ventura County where most of the dads worked in the construction industry, building homes. And it it was pretty middle-class, right? Everyone I know, there were two cars in the garage. You know, the families owned their own homes and there would be one vacation a year and people had barbecues in the backyard. And not, no one was rich, but everyone had these, these things. And I went back and I looked at the the BLS data from those years. What were those dads earning? And then did the calculation, the inflation calculation. They were earning around $40 an hour. So, $40 an hour is the middle class wage. And so, what I'm saying is that these industries, you create them in the United States and they should be like it should be deliberate. These are new industries. There's not some history where you can say, well, historically, these are low-paid jobs. No, don't tell me historically. We're creating new industries. These are going to be $40 an hour jobs because we want to recreate and buttress a middle class in Rust Belt areas, and we don't want them to pay $15 an hour.
2: And while, as you said, you know, making sure that we don't end up exporting emissions. And I think there is also the, the sort of labor standards, the human rights issues that are, you know, under the spotlight when it comes to clean energy technology supply chains. We're still, you know, learning quite a bit about, you know, places like Xinjiang, you know, how the critical minerals and and some of the uh, component manufacturing may or may not meet the, you know, the governance standards. You know, that actually leads me to uh, wonder, you know, in places like Canada and Australia, they also have democracies, they also have, you know, regulatory environment that, you know, I think, you know, many US-based companies, you know, are comfortable with, but they have a lot shorter timeline for, you know, permitting or, or even probably, you know, starting new processing capacity. Why is it that we haven't been able to really you know, join that club of, you know, countries that could have the you know, right commercial environment.
0: Yeah, you know, this is a good question. Uh, in both of those cases, I think uh, my impression is it's not the whole country of Canada or the whole country of Australia. It's, par- it's parts and it's the parts uh, of the countries that have traditions of mining or tr- traditions of industry. So there's that. I don't know how you change cultures, or how cultures evolve, maybe part of the, this process will be that um, anthropologists, I don't know, you know, what is the expertise that speaks to the evolution of mindsets, but maybe they have to be part of the policy of the equation.
2: Steve, I very much appreciate the fact that we need more of a sustained political support in Washington to get the supply chain, you know, be more resilient and robust. And when we look at, you know, China's political system, you know, it doesn't really, their direction doesn't change every four years, every eight years, right? So, and in in many ways, um, they have been able to um, have, you know, integrated. Process so that the mining companies know what sort of a requirement and demand from, you know, companies right, you know, right next to them along the supply chains and then, you know, down, downwards. And it's really hard for any, uh, Western democracies to emulate that, you know, process. But, but, you know, it's, you know, I very much appreciate your comment. And, but let me, so that wasn't really a question, but I wanted to emphasize what you said. But the question, if I may, well, another one. I'm also glad that, Steve, you highlighted the importance of processing capacity because, you know, China doesn't have all the minerals or, you know, whether in types or quantity or volumes, but they do have, you know, just, you know, the leading presence on the processing capacity for almost everything. And I think, you know, it took you know, many of us, you know, both inside Washington and, and perhaps outside Washington within the United States to fully appreciate that. And it, uh, that's really the, the choke point. And that's really the commanding height as you characterize. The EV battery supply chains are, you know, involve a lot of different segments. You know, there's the, you know, extreme you know, upstream, there's processing, etc. But when it comes to geopolitics, you know, which segment, you know, presents the biggest vulnerability for, you know, countries that really want to make their supply chains more resilient and be competitive?
0: Yeah, this is probably the most important question of, of all when we think about batteries and EVs. Where is power? where is that place that that point at which power is held projected uh, and wealth is created and uh, and sustained and built so you know what are the uh, are the possible suspects evs batteries them, themselves the raw ore right? the these various precious critical mineral uh, minerals that go into It's none of those, right? The the power, that is not power. What China understood a decade ago, at least a decade ago, is that the, the commanding heights in the EV industry was going to be the capacity to process these minerals and the metals into the final product. To build those plants, their refining plants, their chemical processing plants, Uh, And they produce the final products. Much of it is dirty, but some of it isn't. But they were going to be the ones who produced all of that, right? They didn't have um, cobalt. They didn't have lithium. Cobalt comes from mostly from the Democratic Republic of uh, Congo. And lithium, the greatest lithium resources are in the lithium triangle in Latin America. And the biggest lithium producer is Australia. So not China. It's The same with nickel. And, and and so they don't, but they understood they could uh, exert power, they could own power by taking, by bringing in that stuff and processing it. So that's it, the uh, power in this industry, the commanding heights to own it, the geopolitical commanding heights is processing. And if the US wants to re- reduce China's chokehold on the industry and bring it down you know, bring us down a couple of pegs because it's, you know, this is OPEC number two in the making. You know, do you want that? And if you don't want that, you've got to build processing at home. That's why. And then the the U.S. has shared occupancy of that commanding height.
2: Fantastic. I I think we could actually go on for another 60 minutes. I mean, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Steve.
1: Thank you. Thanks to Steve for joining us this week. There are links to Steve's newsletter, The Electric, and to some of Jane's work in our episode description. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. You can follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening.